We have two cases for argument this morning. The state of Minnesota versus Culver and Block versus Exterior Remodelers. We'll take uh, Culver first. Mr. Raggett, you've reserved 10 minutes for rebuttal. You may proceed when you're ready. Good morning, may it please the court, counsel. My name is Thomas Raggetts. I'm an assistant Ramsey County attorney and I represent appellant state of Minnesota in this matter. This uh, is a deprivation of parental rights case and the only issue before this court is whether there is sufficient evidence, specifically whether the jury's verdict uh, must be reversed because the state did not provide sufficient evidence of intent substantially to deprive. Now, there are five fundamental things that are not in dispute in this case. First, there is no dispute that the deprivation here was in direct violation of the family court's order. Second, the parties agree that the word substantial in the phrase intent substantially to deprive here means considerable in importance, value, degree, amount, or extent. Third, the parties agree that all of the deprivation here was intentional. Respondent concedes that on page 15 of her brief. Fourth, the facts here are essentially undisputed. The deprivation here took place over 15 straight calendar days, during which time the father, D.E., was deprived of six visits with his young daughter, one of which was supposed to be an overnight visit. So that's seven days over the course of the 15 that he was supposed to see his daughter, but did not. The deprivation would have continued on to the 16th day, because on that day, the mother respondent said, you can't see her again today, we've got family plans, but the mother was arrested that day, so there was a visit on the 16th day, but it would have gone through 16, but for the arrest. Uh, and the arrest was per the amended family court order where Judge Bryan authorized law enforcement to enforce the visitation schedule. So that was I number four. I have a question about that. Um, is it unusual, um, the family court has, I, I thought he, Judge Bryant talked about the different remedies that were available in family court, like contempt of court, changing the custodial time or the parenting time. What, is it unusual to bring a criminal case in these circumstances? I'm not aware of other criminal cases um, at least not many that involve deprivation of parental rights. You've seen the few that are cited in the briefs. Um, whether it's unusual to involve law enforcement, I think it's a slightly different question because while contempt may be an option in family court, contempt wouldn't have interrupted this deprivation on the 16th day um, unless, again, you have law enforcement involved to, to basically force the mother to turn the child over. So that's what happened on the 16th day here. And then after that, the prosecutor... Here, here's what concerns me about it, because in family court, the paramount um, object is the, the best interest of the child. And this is a somewhat unusual case where the dad is just getting to know the kid and is having not, not daily contact with, with the child, but like four hours at a time. It, it just seems to me odd that all of a sudden this case becomes a criminal case. Well, Your Honor, I think it, the nature of the relationship here is what makes the deprivation here substantial and what made this important because, again, the father was just getting to know his daughter. He didn't even know she existed for the first year of her life. And 
the judge set up a parenting time order because the mother had been, prior to that, routinely depriving the father of his court-ordered visitation time. There's, there's findings to that extent here. And again, uh, not again, this court, uh, in reviewing this case, has to look at the evidence in the light most favorable to the state. And the father testified that he'd only gotten about 50% of his parenting time up to that point, And he'd never gotten make-up dates. Judge Bryan, I think it's pretty clear here, was frustrated with the mother for not following the rules and the orders and said, here's my schedule. You have to follow it unless you can agree otherwise. And, and that gets back to point number one, which is there's no dispute here that she blatantly didn't follow the court order. So the fifth and final uh, undisputed point here is that 15 straight days of deprivation could be substantial under, depending on the facts. Respondent concedes that on page 26 of her brief. Her argument is not that 15 days can't be substantial. It's that under these facts, there is no, there isn't sufficient evidence. And Counsel, I just want to make sure I understand what's before the court. I don't understand respondent to have argued that this statute that makes this behavior criminal is unconstitutional in any way. Is that, am I right about you, that? Or is there some sort of constitutional argument being the, pressed? No, there is no constitutional argument. There is sort of a general fairness argument that this should have been family court, not criminal. But the legislature chose to pass the statute. And there's been no argument here that the prosecutor somehow abused his discretion in charging under this statute. The only issue before this court is sufficiency of the evidence. Uh, and respondent essentially makes two arguments. First, that um, even though all the deprivation here was, inten was intentional, uh, the verdict still has to be overturned because there was no intent substantially to deprive the operative or be there being substantially. Uh, and the basis of that argument is the notion that the mother intended to make up these misdates. So that's argument number one. Argument number two is that under these facts, there was no substantial deprivation. So I'll start with the first argument on the intent substantially to deprive. And I have two responses to that argument. The first is that makeup dates, uh, hypothetical makeup dates, are irrelevant. The statute does not require permanent deprivation of parenting time. Response essentially asking you to read that word into the statute. So whether she would have made up this parenting time later is not relevant to whether the 15 days in and of itself was substantial. Substantial here is essentially a term referring to measurement, uh, the importance, the degree, the amount, the extent. The 15 days doesn't become more or less um, important or considerable or things like that just because maybe it would be made up in the future. Is the, um, is the jury's verdict here... Did they, did they make a finding that it was substantial that we need to defer to? They did. Um, now, it's insufficiency of the evidence, you, can, you always, rever, always uh, re review the jury's verdict. But the jury did here find her guilty. And so I think the point that gets to is this essentially came down to a credibility determination here. Um, because, yes, the mother did repeatedly say, well, let's talk about making up these dates. But the father testified, she said that before. I've never gotten a makeup date. And so it's a credibility determination. And that, that gets to the second part of my argument. My first argument is, is that makeup dates are irrelevant because permanently isn't a part of the statute. Um, in, in the theft of movable property, the state does have to prove that a permanent deprivation. But here, the state didn't have to prove a permanent deprivation, just that the 15 days here was substantial. So there was well, well, even if we credit um, mother's um, claim that she has some makeup dates in mind. If I understand the facts correctly, and you should correct me if I'm wrong, but if 
if I understand the facts correctly, even at the tail end of these, this deprivation period, mother is talking about a makeup date two weeks from then. I mean, it, it, and, and in light of everything that has preceded that, um, a jury could reasonably look at that and, and it becomes a credibility issue. I think that's exactly right, Your Honor. And in fact, it's more than two weeks. That's 15 or 16 days out. So we have a 15-day block of not seeing the daughter. And then the makeup date isn't for another 15 days after that. There's no agreement to that date. Her agreement was agreement to discuss it, as right. I recall. Right, just, just throwing it out there. And, and I think it's also important here that Judge Bryan expressly said, all of the communication here has to be through this Our Family Wizard. And... Um, and so all these offers, well, let's sit down and talk about makeup dates. Well, it's understandable the father wouldn't want to do that because that would be in violation of the court order. And then the father just got no way to prove what was said. And as you can see from the PSI, lies were told about the father in the past. So he had good reason to be wary here of sitting down uh, and talking about makeup dates. And again, it's more than, I think it's 15 or 16 days in the future. And during these 15 days, there's no notion of, well, we can't do Monday and Wednesday, but how about Tuesday and Thursday instead? Or how about we squeeze one in just somewhere in the 15 days? There's nothing like that. The, the notion, the assertion was, we, got a, we have a wedding, which isn't out of state, it's just out of town, that blocks off 10 days. And then after that, we've got a funeral, um, which she makes sounds like is a sudden event, but she actually knew about for nine days before she informed the father, and, uh, and she lied about the date of the visitation. And so that was going to take up the rest of these 15 days. And then on the 16th day, there was another thing happening, out-of-town family event that meant no visitation, but that's when she got arrested and had to provide the, the visitation time, the parenting time. So argument number one, again, it's irrelevant whether she would have made it up because the statute doesn't require permanent deprivation uh, Argument number two is it's not a reasonable hypothesis that she would have made it up. You have to look at the facts in the light most favorable to the state, and the father testified he'd never gotten makeup time before. Uh, and so it's no more reasonable here to think this is going to be the first time makeup time is ever going to occur as it is to assume that this is going to be the first time that Lucy finally lets Charlie Brown kick the football. It's never happened in the past. It's not impossible, but it's not reasonable to think this is the first time it's ever going to happen. Counsel, I'm interested in what our standard of review is and basically whether this case is a review of circumstantial evidence, direct evidence, or both direct and circumstantial evidence. I'm going to ask opposing counsel the same question. There, were, uh, there was an exhibit um, that was a transcript of the family wizard, um, which has Ms. Ms. Culver's statements. Is that exhibit direct evidence or circumstantial evidence? I believe that is direct evidence of the communication between the parties because no one's ever disputed the accuracy or admissibility of that. So that's direct evidence of her saying, you can't see the kid for 10 days because of this wedding, and then you can't see the kid again because of this funeral. Um, so that's direct evidence. Now, there has been some dispute over the circumstantial evidence standard review. And I have agreed all along that if her intent is relevant, Intent always has to be, or almost always has to be reviewed circumstantially, unless someone says, I'm intending to kill you while I shoot you. You have to look at all the actions and look at um, whether it supports the inference of intent. My argument here is you don't need to look at this circumstantially because, um, or under the circumstantial standard, because the offers to make up are irrelevant. But if the offers to make up are relevant, if you do have to look at her credibility there and, um, and whether that's a reasonable alternative hypothesis, then you look at that under the circumstantial evidence standard review. But under that standard, you defer to the jury's credibility determinations and you look at the evidence in the light most favorable of the state. So that was a long answer. I hope I answered most, if not all, of your question. Um, 
So the first argument, again, is uh, that a respondent has made is that there was no intent substantially to deprive here. And my response is makeup dates are irrelevant, and in any event, it's not credible. Um, the jury properly determined that. The other argument that respondent has made is that there was no substantial deprivation here under these facts. Uh, and the first part of that argument is, again, because of the intent to make up the misdates. And, and again, my argument is uh, substantial Substantialness is a measurement. It doesn't matter what might, hap hap might hypothetically happen in the future. So whether the deprivation here, the 15 days, was substantial doesn't depend on the makeup dates. The other thing that appellant, that respondent argues uh, on this point is the same thing that the Court of Appeals pointed at. These facts about um, the father knowing where the daughter was. The daughter wasn't out of state. The father was in contact with the mother. The Court of Appeals said that goes to the intent of the substantialist and renders the jury's verdict here um, wrong. But again, substantialist is a measurement. And when, if someone takes a substantial amount of money from you, the amount of money doesn't become less substantial because you know where the money is, because the money's not out of state, because the person keeps telling you, yeah, I'll pay you back someday. Whether it's substantial just depends on the amount of money or the amount of time here in light of the relationship. So the knowledge, the out-of-state would only be relevant here if we didn't have a substantial amount of time and we're trying to prove, yeah, but it would have been substantial but for the arrest, and we're not arguing that here. So the facts identified by the Court of Appeals and by respondent uh, on the substantialness of this amount of time Counsel, are not relevant. Does the record tell us uh, how long the parenting time order was in effect? Well... Judge Bryan just issued this parenting time order on July 22nd, and the wedding came up at that, at that uh, hearing, and Judge Bryan essentially said, I'm not going to get involved. You have to work this out among yourselves. If you don't, you have to follow this parenting time order that starts on July 25th. So the parenting time order has been in effect for three days when on July 25th, uh, respondent, the mother, basically says, you can't see her for the next 10 days. But that looks to me like it's an amended order. Was there a previous order addressing parenting time? There may have, yes, there, there was. Um, I think the fathers first started, um, first got joint custody in December of 2014. So there must have been an order at that time establishing however the joint custody was going to work. And then there was the order here, and then there was an amended order here midway through the missed 15 days that is what authorized law enforcement to get involved. So I think that is Counsel. important. Oh, I'm sorry. Finish, no, your, go ahead. finish your answer. Uh, I, I, just, I think that the fact that only three days passed between respondent hearing this order that said you have to follow this and then saying I'm not following it is significant here. And it goes uh, at least to some extent to the intent. Counsel, I was wondering, you, you seem to be focusing in terms of how we should define substantial on just the sheer amount of, of the deprivation, the time. And I guess I'm wondering if that's consistent, A, with the definition that it looks like the parties agreed upon, which is substantial means uh, considerable in importance, degree, extent, and all of those things. But so when you just focus on time, it seems to me you're not focusing on those other factors. So that's one piece. And then secondly, you know, when you look at cases like our recent Robinson case, and we said, well, we're going to determine whether someone is involved in a significant romantic relationship on a case-by-case -case basis, looking at the various statutory mm -hmm. factors. So it was a more 
inclusive um, analysis, if you will. So I'm just wondering how your test, it doesn't seem like it fits with A, what the parties have agreed significant quote unquote means, but also with our, our recent case law at least. Uh, yes, Shouldn't Your Honor. Shouldn't it be I, looking at more? Shouldn't it be or sort of a totality kind of thing? That, yes, Your Honor. And I do want to make clear, I am not asking for a bright line rule that 15 days is always enough. Um, my argument here is that it depends on, in this case, the relationship. If this was a 17-year-old girl who had spent her whole life with her father, that might be different. But here we've got a three-year-old girl who's just getting to know her father. That's what makes this so important. I think every parent of a three-year-old knows how much they change and learn and grow over a very short period of time. Fifteen days is a considerable amount of time when you're talking about a three-year-old, particularly a three-year-old who's just getting to know her father. So, okay, so maybe I, maybe I, I mistook your, your argument. So you are suggesting that we look at, um, that it is a case-by-case case analysis. It, it is. Under Robinson, it clearly is a case-by-case. Case. And my argument here is... The jury looked at this on a case-by-case -case basis, and this court should defer to the jury's verdict, finding it was substantial here under these unique facts. And the problem with the Court of Appeals decision is the facts that relied on are irrelevant. The fact about knowing where the child was, things like that. So under the Court of Appeals decision, there essentially was a rule that it had to be more than 15 days, because the facts that made less than 15 days not okay are just not relevant. So. This is a fairly narrow case, applying the law to the unique facts here, but it's important because prosecutors need to know when they can charge a case like this. Counsel, how important is it to your, following up, I guess, back to the question that Justice Leuhog asked you about circumstantial evidence versus the direct evidence, um, how important to the question of whether we review under the circumstantial evidence or the direct evidence standard is it that your positing that the substantialness question is an objective question, not a subjective question? Well, I think that is important because, because it is an objective question and respondent doesn't agree with that, then you do just look at the evidence um, the same way you would as any other objective evidence and not as to the circumstantial evidence of intent. Because it doesn't matter whether she thought this was going to be substantial. The question is whether she did it intentionally, and everyone agrees she did, and whether the end result was substantial. Um, it's no excuse to say, let's, I'm gonna give you a hypothetical. Uh, if you've got a mobster who, someone owes him money and he decides to cut off that person's pinky finger. He does that intentionally. It's no defense for the mobster to say, well, I didn't think of that as great bodily harm. I didn't know the definition of great bodily harm. If you did it intentionally and it meets the legal test, you're guilty. And here, she did it intentionally and it meets the legal test of substantialness under the direct evidence standard review. The circumstantial evidence doesn't matter here because she's not saying this was accidental uh, or somehow not on purpose. She admits all of the deprivation here was intentional. Counsel, you say we should uh, certainly defer to the jury on this point. Uh, what, what did the judge instruct the jury was the meaning of the phrase an intent substantially to deprive? Your Honor, I don't have the jury instructions in my mind. I'll try and get back to that on rebuttal or perhaps um, respond and can answer that question. There hasn't been any argument that there was um, an error in the jury instructions here. I'm not sure that um, the jurors were given a dictionary definition of the word substantial, but it's a common term. Um, and so there hasn't been any argument here that the jurors were improperly instructed. Um, in fact, and again, the only issue here is whether the evidence uh, is sufficient on appellate review. One point that I meant to work into this that I haven't yet is 
the parties also agree that when you're interpreting a statute, you want to um, effectuate the intent of the legislature. And I think it's important here that the legislature has created a 48-hour grace period um, during which, if you return a child, you can't be criminally charged. So that goes against any notion that the legislature's intent was 15 days isn't enough. Two days is a lot less than 15. And as I point out in my brief, the grace period used to be 14, but the legis legislature changed it to two days. So that goes to the legislative intent, and there's no indication in, in the record or in the legislative uh, language or history that the legislature intended uh, the statute only to apply when you have more than 15 days or when Co you have Council, facts different than these. Doesn't that same part of the statute, subdivision 5, express a preference for taking action in family court because there's a, a B1 that says, you know, you within seven days of this criminal prosecution, you know, if you go to family court, then it can also be dismissed. And here we were already in family court. Right, and I think that's an important point because this is not a case where you have two parties, they have a dispute, and their lawyers agree, let's take it to family court, family court can settle this dispute. Family court had already settled the dispute. Family court heard about how uh, respondent was constantly saying, oh, I, she's sick, we've got family commitments, you can't have your parenting time. He only got 50% of his parenting time. He never got makeups. Judge Bryan said, okay, I'm going to settle this by creating this parenting time schedule that you have to follow unless you can mutually agree not to follow it. So family court had already ruled on this, and respondent just simply refused to obey the family court order. And if you look at the unpublished decision I cited uh, to you and the PSI, that was a pattern here of respondent lying to the family court and refusing to follow the family court's authority. So that's why this goes beyond a situation where um, once the parties agree to let the family court figure it out, criminal law shouldn't be involved. Judge Bryan had already figured this out and especially authorized law enforcement to be involved when respondent was just blatantly refusing to follow his order three days after the order, which she heard in open court. And there's no dispute here that she didn't understand the order. And in any event, the statute doesn't require her to understand the order. It just requires an intent substantially to deprive. Counsel, the uh, fact the legislature changed the defense from, let's see, 15 days to two days? 14 to two. 14 yes, to sir. two. That's interesting, but I'm trying to figure out how it's relevant to your argument. Well, You're not contending the statute's ambiguous. Don't we look at former law only when we're, uh, we're construing an ambiguous statute? Yes, and, and the important point here is just the 48 hours, that if the legislature wanted to create a grace period of more than 48 hours it could have, uh, and it didn't here, and that shows that there was no legislative intent to limit the application of criminal law to contexts where you have more than 16 days, more than the time we had here. Um, Robinson talks about looking at the, um, the language in the surrounding context of the statute, and the surrounding context here is the 48-hour grace period. Counsel, um, getting back to the circumstantial evidence standard, I think opposing counsel said in a footnote that that was forfeited by the state because it hadn't been argued below. Can you respond to that, please? Well, no, I, I'm agreeing with the respondent that if you have to look at evidence of intent, the circumstantial evidence standard applies. My argument is that um, because there's an agreement here that she intended all this deprivation. Intent isn't an issue. So there's nothing to apply the circumstantial evidence standard review to because everyone agrees she intended to uh, do all 15 days, almost 16 days of deprivation here. So I agree that if you reject my argument that the makeup dates are irrelevant, 
and you do look at intent, then circumstantial evidence standard review applies. But then you have to decide, is it a reasonable alternative hypothesis that she would have made up these, um, all these missed days? And the jury rejected that. And it's not reasonable because she never, ever made them up before. So that's where the circumstantial evidence is in, standard becomes involved if it needs to be. So just to be clear, your argument is that even if we get to circumstantial evidence, this question of whether she was going to return the children or she was going to do makeup days, we can't get to that in the second step because it's a finding of fact of the jury that she wasn't going to return, a credibility finding that she wasn't going to return them. So we, we can't even rely on that in the second step. That is my argument, that the jury sat with this case for two days, heard all the evidence, and uh, evidentially rejected this notion that this time she really means that this time she really will provide makeup time, even though she never has before. Um, I have less than a minute left, so unless there are additional questions, I will be back for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. You, have, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Uh, Ms. Schultz. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Gina Schultz. I'm an assistant state public defender and I'm here representing Jennifer Culver, the respondent in this matter. Ms. Culver's conviction cannot stand because the state failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that her actions manifested an intent substantially to deprive the other parent of his rights to parenting time or, or custody. When the state proves an element... Counsel, let me address your attention to three facts, and um, I find these three facts very troubling, and you tell me why I shouldn't be troubled by them. First, we have the uh, judge's instructions on parenting time. Um, uh, mother raises this issue of the wedding. Uh, he says, this is my order. You have to work it out, but if you don't work it out, the order applies. Second fact is we have either a lie or, miss or, a, or, or some kind of an inaccurate statement about the visitation. And then lastly, we have um, a discussion about alternative dates after having deprived father for a full 15 days, 14 days, whatever it was, a visitation may be occurring two weeks hence. All three of those facts were before the jury, as I understand it. Isn't that a problem here? For your for your argument that uh, that uh, the verdict can't stand, uh, thank you, Your Honor. I um, I will address all of those facts individually, um, but I think first of all, I'd like to say that those facts maybe go one way, but they're part of the totality of the circumstances, and we look at all of the circumstances proved together. Um, but as for your point about each fact, um, the fact that when we look at uh, Ms. Culver hearing the the order. And then hearing Judge Bryan's response on um, w with regard to the wedding, and then still uh, taking the child without having a, an agreement otherwise, I, I think it's important to look at the context there. I mean, she had a difficult choice to make. Uh, she told uh, her co-parent at the hearing, and then again on Monday, on the day that she left for the wedding, and she and he refused to reschedule with her. So she was left with the choice to either stay home from her daughter's wedding or 
leave her daughter home with someone else so that she could have her two four-hour visits uh, with the father or um, take the child with her. And Council, uh, why is that a hard choice? It's a court order. I mean, court, court orders do force people to make hard choices, whether to obey them or disobey them. But why is it a hard choice? Is, is there any question that the order was unambiguous? I think it's important to note that Judge Bryan said, I'm going to leave this to the good grace of the parties. And well, he said, I'll leave it, leave it up to the parties. If they want to negotiate something different, they can do that. But if they don't, the court order is the court order. I, I agree, Your Honor. And I, and I think that's why we're not challenging that particular element on appeal, um, that, that she did this, retained the child in violation of a court order. Um, but we're still left with the remaining elements, which is that she, intent, that she acted with intent to substantially deprive the other parent of his parenting time or custody. And I think, I think these facts do go to the violation of the court order, but I think they don't necessarily go to her intention to substantially deprive. Um, and uh, so on that point, um, I didn't necessarily read your brief as arguing that the second element in the statute is subjective rather than objective. Is that, is that right? I, we argue that the state has to prove her intent. And I think that whether it's subjective or objective, it's the same inquiry. Um, this court has to look at her actions and determine whether that shows that she had an intent to substantially deprive the other parent of his rights to parenting time or custody. And our argument is that the state just didn't do that here. Mm -hmm. And what's your best argument about why it's a circumstantial evidence? test? Uh, because as, uh, as the state acknowledged, intent is always proved of circumstantial evidence, and it's no different here. Um, and that's exactly what the statute des describes. D does it matter, though, if it's objective or subjective? I mean, I could see an argument that if it's objective, you look at the, you're not looking inside the person's mind. You're looking at what a reasonable person would be doing, and that seems to be provable by direct evidence. A subjective standard, I can understand why you'd get to a circumstantial evidence test. So does that does that matter? I, I know you, you said that objective or subjective doesn't matter in general, but does it matter for which test applies? Uh, I, I do think it is the circumstantial evidence. I think that we win either way, um, but I think this, the circumstantial evidence does apply because the statute mentions intent, and that is her intent. And it's her actions that we look at to determine whether there was intent, and that has to be subjective. So it is subjective standard? I, I, I believe so, Your Honor, especially on the issue of intent. Um, unless I don't know if you're asking about the the question of whether it's substantial, if that's subjective or subjective, or if you're just talking about intent. Just intent. Okay, then we, it is our position that it's subjective. I'm trying to read that second part of the, of the statute where it says the action manifests an intent. So when you look at the action, I mean, I think, we, I think the parties agree that you don't just look at the time that uh, the child was deprived um, of the other parent's presence, but it's got to be a number of things that go into the, the action, right? I, I agree with that, Your Honor. Um, and I think looking at all of the factors together, it, there's a reasonable hypothesis that she did not intend to substantially deprive her co-parent of his rights to parenting time. And there are... But that, that hypothesis would be inconsistent with the verdict, right? So we wouldn't credit it then. It's inconsistent with the verdict. I, I disagree, Your Honor. I have, because the the state relied on circumstantial evidence. We look at, we we take the this whole thing feels a little circular now. Okay, um, 
I, so basically, the, the state presented evidence, and we are crediting the state's evidence. She did say all of these things that are in the messages, but it requires an inference from those that evidence to determine that she did or did not intend to follow through with the, uh, with the rescheduling of visits and ultimately whether she intended to substantially deprive. And but her intent to follow through, that's a credibility determination. I disagree with that, Your Honor. Um, this isn't, she didn't testify. The jury didn't have the opportunity to observe her demeanor or any other indicators of trustworthiness. It's a, it's a cold record. And um, it, this court has case law saying that it, that you can't make credibility findings on a cold record. Um, and can, can the jury properly make a credibility determination comparing the live testimony of one side and the family wizard uh, writing of another? I mean, isn't that also a question of credibility? I don't think so, Your Honor. I, I, the, we do have to believe that the jury credited uh, the father's testimony. But in terms of Ms. Culver's messages, it's uncontroverted evidence that was offered by the state, and it requires an inference. Um, so from are, are her writings on the family wizard direct evidence of intent or circumstantial evidence of intent? It's circumstantial evidence of intent. Are they direct evidence of manifesting an intent or circumstantial evidence of manifesting an intent? It's circumstantial evidence. Why? Your Honor. Um, because it requires an inference uh, for this court to determine whether for the jury or this court to determine whether she intended to substantially deprive her parent of, of his parenting time. And this jury doesn't, this, this court doesn't defer to the jury's choice between reasonable inferences. And because it requires those inferences, it's circumstantial evidence review. If, if we determine that it's an objective standard, so we're not looking at her specific intent, like what's in her mind, but what a, reason, what a reasonable person would look at looking at the facts as to whether it's substantial, substantial does that do you do you lose then no I don't think so your honor um, I do think it's the same inquiry whether we're looking at what's in her head or what a reasonable person um, sees when they look at her actions we're doing the same thing we're looking at what did she do and what does that tell us about what her intent was um, if she had some kind of secret intent that we don't know about I, I suppose that's irrelevant um, but I think that whether it's objective or subjective it's the same we're looking at the same facts. Here's the fact that troubles me. Um, the jurors did hear the father testify that he had never gotten makeup time in the past. So that is a fact that, that's proven and we, we accept the jury's finding on that fact. Is, isn't that right? Yes, Your Honor. Yeah, and we... That, and then how doesn't, doesn't that really affect the reasonableness of the hypothesis that you're urging us to draw? I, I, I suppose it affects the reasonableness, but not fatally. Um, I, and that's for a few reasons. Um, one is that it's just not accurate to say that because she's done something in the past, she's doing it again. And it's certainly not the only reasonable hypothesis from these circumstances. Uh, second, she's not doing the same thing that she's done in the past. Um, the testimony from the father was that she, in the past, uh, she would cancel a visit because the daughter was sick or something like that, and then she would say, a makeup visit will be scheduled, and then she would never follow up and nothing would ever happen. That's not what's happening here. She is repeatedly pushing him to meet so that they could schedule a visit. She said eight different times she mentions 
rescheduling. Uh, the first seven, she's saying, let's meet on Wednesday, the day after her family obligations are over, so that we can compare our schedules and we can find a time to get this on the calendar. When he doesn't respond to any of those messages, she finally says, But Council, okay. how is that any different than what she did in the past when in the past she said there would be makeup visits, but they didn't occur. I mean, I'm, I'm not following your argument. Sure. The, the father's testimony is that she would never reach out to him. She would never ask about scheduling a visit. She would just say a makeup visit will be scheduled, and then he would never hear from her. And that's not what's happening here. She's, uh, these aren't vague gestures toward rescheduling. She's saying specific dates, and, um, and even though those dates are a couple of weeks out, his parenting time would have continued as scheduled. The, the problem is, Council, what you're arguing now is based on a cold record, as you put it, because she didn't testify. And um, how are we supposed to credit the cold record on the family wizard as credible as against the testimony of the alleged victim in the case? Um, how, how are we supposed to balance those two things? I guess I would disagree that you would have to credit it. Um, because the inquiry here well, we is... We need to at least determine it's a reasonable hypothesis. Yes, I How agree. How do we determine it's reasonable when all we've got is um, your interpretation of what the family wizard is telling us? Well, because that hypothesis is supported by the facts in the record. And um, one of them is that she had a reason. Uh, there was a, f a wedding and there was a funeral. She told him about the wedding as soon as she possibly could. Uh, we don't know when she found out about the funeral, but she did tell him about did, it. She had did, a reason. Did the jury have to determine in reaching a conviction under the jury under this test that her reason was not credible? I mean, could they have convicted her if they didn't find that reason was credible? Um, are, are you asking if the jury believed that the wedding and the funeral existed? Could they I'm, I'm asking they convicted her. And so, in so reaching a conviction, did they necessarily have to determine that her, her position on whether she was going to make up these dates was reasonable? Or did they have to, in convicting her, decide, we don't believe that that's a reasonable interpretation? Could they have convicted her had they found it reasonable that she was going to return it, but I'm going to convict you anyway? I think the jury could have convicted for a lot of different reasons. I mean, they could have said, okay, sure, she... Um, intended to reschedule, uh, but you just can't do this. And so she's guilty. Um, we don't know what the jury thought. Um, but what we have here is a circumstantial evidence test. So we look at the circumstances proved. And, well, and that's why I'm asking, because we can't get to the second step of the circumstantial evidence on something that the jury found to be a fact. I mean, we have to assume that. So if the jury found to be a fact that she didn't intend to return the kids, you don't get to the second step on your argument, I, I think. And so that's what, where my question is coming from. Is the conviction evidence that the jury, and you got to, I guess, interpret the jury, jury verdict in favor of the state in this case, too. So how do you get to the second step? So what I would argue is that the verdict is evidence that the jury made that inference that they, uh, they looked at her messages, they looked at her conduct and said, okay, we think that she wasn't gonna follow through. Or they, we, at, at least we think she intended to substantially deprive um, her co-parent. But that's one inference from the evidence and it's not the only reasonable inference. Because here we have these eight messages that she says, let's reschedule, let's meet to reschedule, let's meet on Wednesday to reschedule. What about Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday? And she didn't have any opportunity to follow through because he didn't respond. 
And after all of those messages, she says, okay, how about the 25th or the 26th? Let's, let's get that on the, on the calendar. And he doesn't respond. And that's an important fact. And that fact is also bolstered by the fact that she had these events. She had a reason for, uh, for retaining the child during this time. Whether it was a good reason or not, I, I don't think that really matters for this inquiry because what we're asking about is her intent. And she, in addition to that, she stayed in touch with the father. She let him know where they were. She responded to his messages. Counsel, I'm puzzled by your statement. It doesn't make any difference whether her explanation was reasonable or not. Um, let's say you've got a situation where father shows up for visitation and uh, mother says, um, Susie can't have visitation today. We need to shine her shoes. I mean, that sounds like a pretty unreasonable reason. Uh, that's yeah. a good point, Your Honor. Maybe I should clarify that. I think whether it was a reasonable excuse to violate the court order, I think that doesn't matter. I think that it does go to intent, where I think if, if we have a mother who says, oh, we have to shine, sign, shine Susie's shoes, that's a pretty good evidence that... <coughs> that she's just intending to deprive the other parent of his, of his parenting time. And that's not what we have here. We have a funeral and a wedding. And whether she should have left the child behind, whether she should have not gone to her daughter's funeral, that's a question of reasonableness. Well, but... let's go back to Justice Anderson's opening question and focus specifically on the wedding. She raised the wedding before Judge Bryan. And Judge Bryan basically made clear that it would be an unreasonable excuse not to produce the child because of the wedding, unless the parties worked out something different. Why isn't that kind of game, set, and match to uphold the jury's uh, verdict? I think that only goes to the violation of the court order, which we're not challenging at this point. Uh, we're challenging the intent element. And what we're saying here is that the state just didn't produce enough evidence to show to, so that this court can look at this evidence and say the only interpretation here is that she intended to substantially deprive her co-parent of his parenting time or custody. That's just not true. When we look at her messages, we see a mother who is consistently trying to reschedule. She's responding to messages. She has a reason for doing what she's doing. And it's just not the only inference to say that this is somebody who's trying to deprive her co-parent. Is there any evidence in the record as far as that wedding that she sought to find somebody to take care of the daughter so that the, the visitation could occur, the parenting time could occur? There is no evidence in the record of that. Okay, so um, I want to move on to the idea of what is substantial. Uh, the parties do agree on the definition of substantial, which is considerable in importance, amount, degree, or extent. Um, and Counsel, what weight do you put on the um, portion of the statute dealing with the uh, dismissal within two days? Um, that does seem to suggest that two days may be de minimis, more than two days may be sub substantial. It, I agree that maybe it means that under under 48 hours is de minimis, but I don't think it follows that anything over 48 hours is substantial. Does it, to, to your mind, does that statute, part of the statute, tell us anything about the question of substantialness? I don't really think so. I mean, because there are a lot of other provisions in the statute that I think are relevant to that inquiry, too. So there's, I mean, under the statute, you can file charges the very moment that the, on, on day one. Um, even if you have to dismiss them 48 hours later. I think there are a lot of indicators of, because I think what matters here is the intent. 
And, you know, we said in our brief that it, the child doesn't have to be gone for a certain number of days before it's, it's substantial. Um, in Stacey and Dow, we saw that the parent was only gone for 12 days, but what mattered was her intent. Would you, would you agree that it's a case-by-case -case determination? Yes, I do, Your Honor, um, based on totality of the circumstances. And um, in Robinson, this court looked at a, a similar scenario and applied the circumstantial evidence standard. And in, the only difference in that case is that this court said there's conflicting witness testimony, and that's something that we resolve in favor of the state. And that's part of the circumstances proved, and that's the end of the inquiry. Um, but we don't have that today. We have the father's testimony, and then we have this cold record of the, of the mother's messages. And because there's not a credibility finding, we don't defer to the jury's choice between reasonable inferences. And there is a reasonable inference here that she didn't intend to substantially deprive. So I also want to address the, uh, the state's argument that we've conceded that she intended to deprive, um, but not intended to substantially deprive. Um, that's not true. Uh, what we've conceded is that she intentionally retained the child in violation of a court order. And that, that's different because the, the state's reading reads out the second intent requirement in the statute. There are two. There's one that she intentionally retained the child, and we're not challenging that. The second is she did it with the intent substantially to deprive the other parent of parenting time or custody. And so this court can't just look at the intentional conduct and then the resulting deprivation and say that's enough. The state's proved enough. Um, the statute doesn't say with the intent to substantially deprive. That's it says true, where the action manifests an intent. I mean, that's a pretty big difference. It still is. It still says intent, and it still is referring to her intent. And so, I think functionally, the analysis is the same. That we're looking at her actions and deciding whether she intended to substantially deprive. But actions manifest suggests an objective standard, and I guess I've been kind of pondering this as I've been thinking about the arguments of the parties here. And and I, um, I, I think we usually view. Um, uh, the test here as objective. Uh, in other words, I would suggest that it's unusual, perhaps not unheard of, but unusual for us to have a subjective intent uh, test uh, in a criminal statute. And I'm just wondering here, given that language, how do we get to, I mean, how do you get to a, conclude that the legislature intended a subjective intent here? I mean, is there any other statute, any other crime that you can compare this to? I mean, what, what's, the, uh, what's the best argument for, for a subjective intent test here? Well, I think uh, two things. One is that the statute says intent. It says, it, it, it tells us whose actions we're looking at to determine whether there was an intent. And that has to be Ms. Culver. There's nobody else's actions. I don't know how we think about a reasonable person's intent in any way that's different from looking at her actions and determining whether that manifested an intent substantially to deprive. Uh, second, I think the only statute that does anything that has similar language is the third degree murder statute. And there it says the intent um, that the, the conduct evinces a depraved mind. And there this court's case law is clear that we look at the actions of the defendant and infer um, 
a depraved mind. And um, at least at the Court of Appeals, the circumstantial evidence standard has been applied there. And I, th I think to answer your, your question, ultimately I don't think there's a difference here between, functionally, between objective or subjective intent. Um, perhaps if Ms. Culver had testified and said, oh sure, my actions looked one way, but I had this secret intent that, that went the other way, maybe that's a distinction. Um, but here, it's the same inquiry. We're looking at her actions and inferring whether there was intent. And because there's that inference, it's the circumstantial evidence standard, and this, jury, this court doesn't defer to the jury's choice between reasonable inferences. And there truly was a reasonable inference here that she intended to follow through with scheduling these visits. And that's supported by um, the facts in the record that I've already already trotted out here that she stayed in touch, she tried to reschedule, and she had a reason for doing what she did, and that is, wasn't just. But is the but the jury necessarily had to find that there was substantial here, right, to convict? Yes, Your Honor. And all of this, these arguments were presented to the jury. The very arguments you're making were presented to the jury. I, I don't know that I would agree with that. Why? Uh, I mean, looking at the, the state's um, arguments and the defense arguments, um, they don't exactly mirror the, the arguments that I'm making here. Um, the state argued that this is a violation of a court order case and that that's what the jury needed to focus on. And um, but, Well, maybe I should say, oh, I almost spilled. Um, the factual arguments you're making, though, were presented to the jury, and they looked at the presumably the totality of the circumstances, used their common sense about what substantial meant, and decided this is substantial, even hearing those arguments. So th doesn't that kind of end the case? I don't think so, Your Honor. I, jury verdicts are still reviewable for sufficiency of the evidence, and we're asking this court to find as a matter of law that this was not substantial. There is not enough evidence here. and. Uh, for that inquiry, we're applying the, the factors in the dictionary definition, which is the extent, amount, degree, um, or value. And we are looking at um, factors like the fact that she kept him in, in, uh, informed of, of where his daughter was and where they were and what was going on and attempted to reschedule. And the Court of Appeals also looked at some other factors, such as the fact that... So what's our rule of law? The rule of law is that um, the state needs to prove... Uh, that the defendant uh, intentionally retained um, a child in violation of a court order, and that, that uh, the defendant's actions manifest an intent substantially to deprive um, the other parent of his parenting time or custody. We need to, the state needs to prove that the defendant's, um, that that was the defendant's intent and that the, the defendant intended the deprivation to be substantial. Uh, I see that I'm out of time here. Um, so unless the court has any other questions, uh, we're asking this court to affirm the Court of Appeals decision reversing Culver's conviction. Um, in, in the alternative, we're asking this court to remand to the Court of Appeals to address the evidentiary area, uh, issue that was raised there but not addressed. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Raggetts, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal.
Council, on that last uh, issue, do you agree, if we agree with your position on this, that the case has to be remanded to the Court of Appeals? It does, Your Honor. The Court of Appeals did not reach the issue of the admission of relationship evidence, so that would have to be adjudicated at the Court of Appeals. This is on page 15 of Respondent's Brief. Quote, Culver does not argue that she did not intend to retain L, unquote. So there's no dispute about the deprivation here because the retaining here is the deprivation. The deprivation here was intentional. The only way intent can be relevant here is if intent to make up matters. And again, my argument is it doesn't because whether the 15 days was substantial doesn't depend on what might happen in the future. And even if it does, under the circumstantial evidence standard review, it was not a reasonable hypothesis that she would have, for the very first time ever, made up these dates. And even if she did, she makes up one date over two weeks in the future, even that isn't going to render this not substantial given can, the amount of time missed. Can I ask just why you're saying the second thing? Is it because it's just unreasonable based on this record for a jury to ever find that, that she could have? Or is it because it was necessary to the jury's verdict that they found that she wasn't going to make it up? Both, Your Honor. And my, so my fallback argument, my main argument is it's irrelevant. My fallback argument is it's not reasonable. And there's two parts of that argument. And either way, we win. One is this was a credibility determination. The jury made it. Um, you shouldn't reverse it. You don't reverse jury credibility determinations. Uh, but even if you disagree with that, if you just look at the record here, it's not reasonable because it had never, ever happened before. And you have to um, believe the father on that. And it wasn't just um, she never gave me makeup dates. It was she talked about giving me makeup dates, but it never actually happened. Same as here. Um, this is not a case about a mother making a difficult choice. Um, Judge Bryan told her on the 22nd, you have to follow this parenting order unless you could reach an agreement otherwise. Now, the next day, she didn't text or communicate with the, the, our family wizard and say, can we please work out some other accommodation over these 10 days? She waited until a couple hours before the father was supposed to pick up his daughter on the 25th and said, can't see her for 10 days, point blank. And the father said, if you had contacted me earlier, maybe we could have worked something out. But it's just hours before he's supposed to pick her up. And it wasn't a day or two. The claim was this little girl can't see her father at all over 10 days because she's going to be a flower girl in, an out of, uh, in a wedding that's not out of state. And that's just unreasonable. Um, and it wasn't one of these situations where she just had a tough choice to make. Um, and then she lied about the funeral after that. Um, so there's no dispute on intent here. Um, the jury did see respondent in court, had a chance to observe her demeanor, and the defense closing argument, to get to a question that was asked earlier, was essentially, the father's not credible. Don't believe the father. Wait a minute. The jury had the chance to observe the respondent in court and observe her demeanor? I thought she didn't testify. Well, she's sitting at counsel table the whole time. And the so. jury's supposed to take into account what she looks like at counsel table? That's, well, I not, that's not a argument for the state to make, is it? Well, I mean, if you're looking at credibility, and the, the notion is this is just a cold record, I mean, the jury's lived with this case for two days. And, and did get a chance to observe uh, respondent. Now, that, um, that isn't the main point here, obviously. The main point and here that, is... And that is a little troubling because we don't hold it against people for not taking the stand in criminal cases. No, no, and I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's not like this was a bench trial or a trial on stipulated evidence or something. The jury 
lived with this case and saw it responded in court for three days in a row and you know could observe facial digging, expressions demeanor I think you're digging yourself a hole here Colin. <laughs> well if, let's move if, on from that then I won't yeah, I, 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 the jury is not to take into account anything about the d defendant's demeanor unless he or she testifies right uh, I'm not sure that that is a rule I mean if, I mean, if you the, wouldn't want to be relying on a conviction that the defendant looked nervous and guilty even though he didn't testify no, but if the if the if the defendant is sitting in court vigorously making faces at a witness or doing things like that, I'm not over any case law says jury can't I, take that. I think account. we better move on. I yeah, I will move on. Thank you. The, um, uh, let's talk about the objective versus subjective thing again, because I still think that I mean that's an important piece of this case, um, and certainly important piece going forward. What about counsel's argument? Uh, point, she points to the third-degree murder statute by comparison and says, uh, well, just respond to that argument, if you would, please. Well, uh, I haven't heard that argument before, so I don't have the elements of third-degree murder in front of me. But I do know, to get back to one of Justice Lilhawk's questions here, that the jury was instructed on page 134 of the transcript uh, that they had to find action that manifested intent to substantially deprive the parent of his rights to parenting time or custody. And again, there's no dispute here that she intentionally deprived. So it comes down to the substantialness. And appellant or respondent has never argued, I didn't think this was substantial, and that's what matters. It's an objective legal test. Was this a substantial amount of time that she intentionally deprived the father of? Um, and we're not talking about whether she would have continued to deprive him and whether that met the test of substantial. We have 15 days here. It was all intentional, and so therefore it's an objective test. Does that but meet isn't the legal it standard? More, uh, isn't it something more than just substantial? Isn't it, isn't it manifesting an intent uh, to deprive? I mean, it's an objective, it's an objective test under the state's theory, um, but it's more than just substantial. Am I right or wrong about that? Well, it's an intent substantially to deprive, uh, manifest intent substantially to deprive. And, and I give you some hypotheticals in my reply brief where if the deprivation was only for two hours, but the parent was on their way to a different country, then you could prove it even though the intent, it, even though the deprivation itself wasn't substantial, there was an intent to, to have a deprivation that would have been substantial. That's not what we have here because we have the 15 days here. And because, again, there's no argument that it was accidental. All of the 15 days was intentional, so it just matters, does it meet the substantialness test? And that is objective. Uh, Respondents never argued subjective that I only think three weeks is substantial, so therefore I didn't have the necessary intent. That's just not an argument that's ever been made, and it's not a, a valid legal argument. Um, the Robinson case, which I, I talked about before, um, says the phrase significant romantic or sexual relationship must be read in the context of its surrounding language. And here, the phrase intent substantially to deprive should be looked at in the surrounding language, which sets out this 48-hour grace period. And this is well beyond that. So that shows the legislature's intent not to say, as a matter of law, 15 days isn't enough. Um, I'm not sure if this is a good idea or not, but I'm going to go back to credibility just to say that the defense argument in closing was the father's not credible. So that shows this was a credibility determination for the jury to make. Is the father credible or is the mother credible when she keeps saying, I, I want to make this up, I want to make this up, but saying let's meet to make it up. She never says, here are the dates that I am available, let's 
let's schedule some of these dates. The only date she gives is, is double the amount of time that's already been missed. It's more than 15 days later, and that's just one of the six dates, including an overnight, that would need to be rescheduled. So credibility was what the jury decided here. Um, so whether to pull, pull you out of the hole, your <laughs> argument is the father testified. The, mo the mother essentially, she didn't testify, but there were admissions that she made by way of the family wizard, and the jury's entitled to weigh the credibility of those different, different statements. Exactly. I wish that's what I had said. Okay. Um, the, uh, because the jury did hear through our family wizard, let's meet to, let's meet to talk about this. And you know, the father's... Say that eight times? I mean, in the family wizard? I think it was a number of times with no response from the dad. And then after no response from the dad, then she threw out the dates that were two weeks in, you know, from that time. Well, what she was asking is, can we schedule a time to sit down and talk about this? And the father didn't respond to that because that would have been a, a violation of Judge Bryan's order. Judge Bryan said, all of this has to be through our family wizard. And that's, where, that's the way the father communicated. The dad could have said that, right? He could have said, actually, you know, let's do it over family wizard like the court said. And here are some dates I'm available. I mean. Well, given his history with her of never getting makeup time, he was understandably frustrated. He testified this made him feel powerless. And there was a clear court order here. There wasn't really anything to negotiate at this point because he had a right to this parenting time. And she wasn't saying over these next 15 days, we're going to have to be a little flexible. Can you do it Tuesday instead of Wednesday, et cetera? She just said, 10 days, nope. And then after that, funeral, another five days, nope. Um, and if you look at the unpublished decision here, this again goes to the issue of whether this should be left to the family court. The family court there found a pattern to delay the proceedings and interfere with the judicial process. And that has to do with uh, the trial on... Um, on who has custody. That doesn't have to do with what we're talking about here. And this is a different family court judge because respondent got Judge Bryan removed. So there's a pattern here of not following the family court. And the father had good reason not to violate the family court order. Um, and again, ultimately, intent to make up uh, the time is irrelevant. And with that, I will simply ask that you uh, reverse the court of appeals and affirm the jury's verdict. Thank you, Thank counsel. You. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. I'll call the second.